Hi, I'm Bradley Barth, senior reporter with SC Media, and I'm here today at the RSA conference in San Francisco with my podcast guest, Dr. Andrea Little Limbago. She is chief social scientist at Virtue, a data privacy and encryption software company. Uh, Andrea, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I think this is the perfect RSA conference to talk to you because you basically dwell in that area, the intersection of cybersecurity and uh, geopolitics and sociology and human behavior. And the human element is the key central theme to this year's RSA show. So uh, I think it's in, in very interesting to explore the human side of cybersecurity and how human behavior shapes security at organizations. And I'm, I'm curious as someone with this sociological background, um, I would love to hear your thoughts a little bit on why this particular theme this year is so important and so relevant. Right. Yeah. When I when I saw the RSA was having the human element as a theme, I was very excited. Obviously, uh, and I think it's a little bit long overdue, but you know, better late than never. And so it's great. We're finally moving beyond looking at cybersecurity as humans as the weakest link, and actually trying to think about how to build technology that takes into uh, takes into effect basically the human behavior aspect of it, and make technology work for those human features. And so, um, one of the favorite sayings that I've heard is, you know, treat humans, you know, humans are features, not bugs in the technology. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we need to start treating them. And so it, you can hit the broad range of aspects from how usable something is, from how we describe what the challenges and threats are to the broader population. We don't do a great job in doing that. And so it really hits almost every aspect across uh, cybersecurity. I mean, it's, it's humans at the end of the day are behind every element of it. And so it's great seeing that the human element is the, the core theme. I mean, I know you could probably write an entire huge dissertation on this, but why does it continue to be, in some cases, so easy to socially engineer people, to get them to reveal their credentials, to, to, to fish them, to get them to click on that link or open up that attachment? It's still such a key component of uh, malicious actor strategies, and it continues to be effective. How can we actually change people's behavior for the better, that seems to be the, 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 the holy grail that no one's been able to figure out really yet. Right, I'd, I'd almost approach it from two different ways. One, and this is actually highlighted in the keynotes this morning, was that basically human behavior, when you're online, is to click on things. That's how we run our businesses, it's how we interact, and so it is natural for us to be clicking on things, and so, so to expect every human to not click on something uh, basically goes against every impulse that they have and how they actually have to do their day-to-day -day functions on, on, online. So on the one hand, we should make the systems more resilient to us clicking on the inappropriate links. But until we get to that point, um, really what the, what the attackers do is they do, they build upon the fear. They want to, they throw something out there that almost, you know, sounds somewhat sensational and, and urgent as well as from a time uh, response. And so you have to do this now or else you'll be locked out of something in 30, you know, 30 minutes. And so they try and get at the both the combination of fear and the, the and, um, urgency as well to get you to do something. And then the other aspect of it, and this is what I, you know, when I talk a lot with my friends and family who are outside of security, you know, whenever I start talking to them about it, they're like, oh, you know, I, I know not to fall for the Nigerian prince issue. And you know, they kind of get insulted by that. And you have to start to explain that it's really sophisticated now. It looks very, very legitimate and real. It looks just like an email. It can look just like it's coming from your boss, your friend. It's on topics that seem, you know, that might resonate with you. And, you know, it, 
really even the, the best experts can still get tricked into it because it looks very, very similar. And that, again, was, was, was a you know, comment um, Winnie Nather in her keynote this morning talked about that, that by, by integrating all those different aspects together, you know, it, humans are going to inherently think that it's okay and legitimate and, and be trustful if it's from a source that they think that, that seems credible. Uh, you know, a good example of even where you know, those in the defense community got tricked was it was a NATO invitation that basically it was the actual invitation that the Russians were able to then take, you know, get the actual invitation embed malware in it and then resend mm. it to everyone. And so mm. it really was the legitimate invitation. It right. just had been yes, uh, manipulated right. <laughs> a bit. And so it looks and it you know, seems like you're doing the legitimate thing by, by downloading it. Right. So, so these are things we're just seeing more and more. And then the one thing I would add, you know, it's not just through email. It's they, they link up you through LinkedIn, through so, various forms of sure. social media where they befriend you through that means. And then once they actually make some sort of relationship with you, you know, you'll get that uh, link to click on. And so there are a variety of different ways there are the attack vectors, I guess, to yeah. the humans are, are expanding as well as more and more social media gets used as a, as a means for phishing. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a very uh, critical word, which is fear. And that makes me think of, you know, one of the recent uh, themes in terms of uh, phishing lures that researchers have been seeing a, a, a spate of recently, uh, not too surprisingly, is uh, email lures uh, centered around the novel coronavirus. Uh, certainly there is a, a scare going on, going on of a potential pandemic and people want information and so we are actually seeing a lot of uh, crafted phishing emails that um, you know seem to uh, suggest that they might have uh, key information on that. So what is sort of the um, psychological strategy behind um, using the coronavirus as a lure? Sure, and so it's, and I would say the coronavirus is just the latest that, that we'll see. Whenever any kind of big event comes up, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's the World Cup, whether it's an earthquake, the attackers leverage that, and they know that people want information as fast as possible, and so they will you know, send very targeted uh, content focused on whatever that event of the day is, and in this case it's the coronavirus, and try and craft it in a way that makes you want to learn more. You know, it's almost you're leveraging the same psychology for the you know, for the clickbait headlines that you see to for learn the five top ways you can do X, Y, and Z. And so they leverage a lot of the you know, same marketing uh, skills that are used to get you to click on something to buy something are used in the same way, and they're surrounding the various kind of events. And while the coronavirus is the main one right now where we're seeing a lot of that, um, I'll just be wary just over the next, you know, through November on the same thing's going to happen with elections and about candidates and mm-hmm. so forth. You're going to start seeing more and more of those being crafted in a way to try and get you to click on it and, and building on your impulses for... Um, especially if you've put a lot of information out there on social media about which way you may be leaning, crafting those in ways that are targeted at you uh, to get you to click on something, be more more likely to do so. So that's just it's something that we just keep on seeing and something that people need to be aware of every time there is some sort of event, whether it's good or bad, uh, that, that that's where the, the attackers will build on that. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, upcoming presentation here at RSA. Uh, by the time the podcast comes out, you will have yeah. done it. But um, you haven't done it yet. That's right. uh, it coming up. <laughs> And uh, its implications of the global push to ban end-to-end encryption. Uh, so certainly, uh, again, a very uh, relevant topic at this time. Uh, let's start by you kind of giving me sort of the quick elevator pitch summary of what your major uh, talking points and key takeaways will be from that presentation. Yeah, no, and we're very excited to be giving this. And so just. Uh uh, call it as well. I have a co-presenter, Leslie Seebeck from the Australian National University, 
And in addition to her you know, phenomenal expertise, why I think it's so important is because Australia actually has already passed the law. And so basically what is going on right now is that, especially in democracies, they're trying to look for ways to get government-mandated access to data um, under the auspices of national security. And so for those in the security community, we know that encryption is one of the foundational ways to protect, uh, protect data. And so while we see attack, you know, the attacks are coming, you know, they're getting bigger, they're getting more attack vectors, encryption remains one of the core ways to actually protect the data. And what the legislation is starting to emerge sounds very similar to legislation in authoritarian regimes that wants exceptional access to data. And why that's problematic is because there's just no, if you build in a backdoor, it weakens the, the security, and there is no backdoor just for the bad guys. And so by doing so, eventually we'll see criminals, authoritarian regimes, you know, the whole gamut of the bad actors will find ways to also exploit that backdoor. So is there no room for nuance at all? You hear a lot of uh, you know, extreme arguments in the sense of, um, and we must have end-to-end encryption in all cases, no matter what. Then you know, you'll hear things like, if you, know, uh, if, if you, uh, if you don't allow for encryption, you're, you're potentially allowing for potentially uh, terrible uh, criminal acts to take place. Uh, and there's no means to potentially thwart it and, and, and stop it. Um, you know, are there maybe um, very specific limited scenarios in which encryption m- might be permissible, or just once that door is open, you can't really close it? Right, and so this is one of those areas where I actually would love to see some additional innovation, but not probably in the area that we're, that we're currently thinking about, and this is one of the things we'll be talking about, is that currently there is no way to provide that backdoor that just is for the for our government for and for exceptional access with a with a warrant, and so until cryptographers and the, the best in the breed who currently still say that there's no way to do that, until um, that changes, there isn't much nuance on there. But where I think there is nuance is actually looking at ways to still crack down and disrupt these criminal rings, absent breaking encryption, and that's where there is interesting innovation going on. There have been numerous cases over the last few years of dismantling criminal networks through multi-country collaboration, through leveraging a lot of the other data that is given to the, to the government. And that's one thing that I think gets lost a lot, is that it's not that the tech companies are not giving any data to, uh, to the you know, DOJ, FBI. They're actually giving troves of data, various kinds of metadata that they can get access to. And so what may end up being lost if we decide to go, if we decide to weaken encryption in the United States, the criminals are going to go elsewhere. They're going to create their own mobile uh, devices that have encryption based on it, because encryption exists. You, you, there's, you can't put that back. Mm-hmm. And so those devices are going to increasingly be made, and they already are. I mean, there, there have been numerous instances of, of, of criminals using these encrypted phones. And so not only will there, there still be no access to that encrypted traffic, but the, the FBI will also lose the metadata that they're currently being given from Apple and from the other big tech companies surrounding a lot of the communications. And then just one more point on top of all that, mm-hmm. again, assuming that if that would have backdoor it also would lead to, would also lead to the criminals using other uh, messaging applications from other countries, such as China. And so there's no way we'll get a we, like WeChat or Weibo information to, to cooperate with the U.S. government, unless it for some reason happens to be in the Chinese government best interest. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. whereas we think going, there's going dark right now, I think it over, um, overstates the nuance of how much data is being given right now, and it lacks uh, more of a, a nuance in understanding what might mean from going where would they think going dark now to going black mm-hmm. might be by having absolutely no access at all to any kind of the metadata or anything like that, which is where the, the criminals would be in the nation state actors uh, would be more prone to be using those kind of devices. So yeah. it, it could lead to a very 
you know, dangerous slope of a complete lack of information in, in many ways. Um, not to take, which and that doesn't even discuss all the issues for all the citizens who require, you know, who want an encryption for our own basic security and privacy, mm-hmm. and what companies need for protecting their IP and the PII. And so, as we see a lot of these data protection uh, policies coming into play, like GDPR and CCPA, embedded within them, those are ensuring that you have reasonable security safeguards. And based on the fines that we've seen so far from GDPR, many of those fault a lack of encryption for not securing their their data. And so you have these really two kind of um, monumental forces coming head-on right now Mm. where you want to weaken encryption and and get access to all the data on the one hand, and you have the privacy movement on the other uh, demanding encryption for security and privacy for the data. And so it's really, there there are multifaceted trends going on, and I would argue that one is very common in spreading in authoritarian regimes and starting to see in Australia and in India, actually is one of the biggest democracies right now, is debate, having the exact same debate for exceptional access. I see. And so you've got all the, that debate on one hand. On the other hand, you've got the GDPR model is spreading. CCPA has some, um, some similarities to it, but then New Brazil's new law coming in effect in August mm-hmm. uh, is very similar to the GDPR. Uh, Japan has harmonized a lot of their data protection with GDPR. So there's really two... Con- conflicting movements going, and I think they have really big implications for our own future of security and privacy and for democracy as well. Well, since you mentioned uh, the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, um, I think that's a great transition, so thanks for the segue. You bet. Uh, we'll, do, we'll see if we can uh, touch quickly on a couple of other topics that uh, also involve uh, the, the human element uh, along with uh, cybersecurity. So let's, let's talk a little bit of privacy. Um, you know, CCPA being a groundbreaking legislation on, on a state level for consumer privacy. Uh, has enough time lapsed yet that we're starting to see a little bit more about um, what from the legislation is working, uh, what maybe needs some fixing, uh, and how you know, other states and potentially even eventually the federal government might want to to what degree uh, model itself after CCPA or maybe change some things? Right. So that's a, it's really an interesting trend that we see going on right now. And it's, on the one hand, we see everyone really focus on the CCPA, as we should, because it really has been the, the state that has made the most progress in uh, implementing any kind of data protection regulation. But I do think it's, it's just a start. I mean, it really just sort of opened the, the way for other states to do something similar. And so while I think it's a little too quick to see what exactly is working and what isn't working, there are some indications of you know, what there's some new amendment, amendments already coming in to try and tweak it a little bit to make it um, to clarify various aspects of it so that the lawyers and, and the, you know, the DPOs and so forth can actually implement some of the policies. But I think one of the ways we're going to see where it is uh, having a positive impact is what aspects of it we start seeing being copied across the various state legislation mm-hmm. that are coming abroad are coming out. And so you see New York copying several aspects of it. Uh, you see Massachusetts. You know, Texas, Nebraska is one of the more recent ones to, to come out. And they're all, those, they're, you know, there's a core group of them that are looking at more of the omnibus approach to it, similar to the CCPA that looks at a broad range of data protections that include everything from, um, you know, the right to access the data, the, but then also, you know, who's going to be the one to actually enforce all of it. And that's where some of the states are starting to differ. And that's where I think the CCPA, you know, starts off in one area and looking at the Attorney General for broader enforcement. Some other states are looking more at the individuals can take the, um, the right of action on their own. And I think that's actually where you get, it's really great uh, you know, for those who do you know, quantitative social science, it'll be a great comparative analysis you can start doing to, to figure out what might be more effective, what might, what's changing behavior, what's mm-hmm. um, 
having the broadest impact on our own security. So we'll see what happens in that area. But because each of the states really, they're not harmonizing mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. They're pulling from what they're seeing other states doing, yeah. and then they're customizing them for what they believe in that is best for their states. And so right. that and that, but it, we're seeing it's over 90 different uh, proposals that address some aspect of data protection that have been at the state capitals over the last year. Yeah. So that's like a groundswell. The CCPA helps spark that. Uh, so that's really exciting on, on that end. But what we're also seeing are some various point solutions. And so you've got Vermont that has targeted the, the data brokers to make sure they're securing the data. Uh, Maine has looked at the, the Internet service providers to make sure they're protecting the data. Uh, and then we've got uh, 54 different data breach notification laws now yeah, <laughs> across the United yeah. States. So there's, and I, that's where I, I actually see that the data breach notification is kind of where I see the, the trend going for the broader data protection. Because absent a federal policy, we are going to see all, each one be have a similar intent, but how they actually implement it will be a little bit different, making it very, very complex and hard for yeah. companies to figure out what the right thing to do is, is in any given state. Uh, do you have a sense as to uh, what maybe the biggest sticking point is at this point for a, a federal privacy legislation? You know, what's, what's still kind of the major obstacle? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, I mean, we know that the Congress currently is having a hard time pushing anything through both sides, and that, that's, that's the reality that we currently live in. Yeah. However, you know, both the Republicans and Democrats over the last few months did make a proposal for a data protection law. And so that alone, I think, is a really good sign that we're finally starting to make some progress. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's going to happen this year by any <laughs> – I would not put my money on that. But the fact that both, uh, both parties are now pushing forth that I think is great – and where we are going to start seeing some differences is in areas of the right of action, what that's going to entail, uh, what companies are covered, you know, whether it's something where they have to be above a $25 million, you know, revenue and so forth, uh, like CCPA, or whether it's going to be something different, um, what the penalties will be, how broad the, you know, the actual uh, regulation will be. You know, there, are broad, you know, there are a variety of different aspects. And then even what kind of data will be covered. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it also gets very interesting because you know, there's personally identifiable information that you can think about as social security numbers, passport information. What about biometrics? You know, is that going to be something that comes into play? I mean, we see some states are already going in, in, in that direction. Uh, facial recognition, is that, will that be part of it? Is, will, will it be that much of an omnibus mm-hmm. kind of uh, bill? And so, you know, I personally, I, I hope they actually, I think the fastest way to get something would be to sort of keep it somewhat well-defined and then hopefully expand upon that. Otherwise, I think if it gets so big, uh, maybe trying to do everything and do nothing is always the, the concern. <laughs> right. Um, well, we'll wrap up with this one. I want to hit on uh, one more uh, topic, and and that is uh, just the proliferation of uh, bots, particularly those that are being used for uh, disinformation campaigns. Um, you even alluded to it, the election, 2020 election coming up, uh, the whole idea of uh, particularly foreign influencers, although, you know, Domestic users can, you know, everybody kind of forgets that, you know, exactly. it's the bots can be used by anybody uh, to advance their agendas. Um, but in particular, you know, there's a certainly uh, a concern that Russia is at it again, trying to sow discord and uh, create a sense of distrust in the democratic system and sort of inflame passions, basically through the spread of disinformation and trolling type of behavior, basically on fake social media accounts and comments boards and things like that. 
have to what extent have we gotten a little bit better at spotting this behavior and eliminating it since 2016? Are we going to be better off in 2020, or are the, are the bots better? Yes, I, you know, it's a, almost a, a yes and no. So on the one hand, we're, so we'll start with the positive. We have gotten better at spotting them. There are you know, new algorithms and so forth that can be used to identify what the bots are and help take them down. The, the social media companies, you know, they range depending on which one, but they are increasing their, uh, you know, the amount of, of bots that they're in fake personas that they are taking down. And so I think all of that is positive because I mean, it's hard to remember, but back in 2016, the major social media companies refused to even admit that they had any impact on the election. It took a long time after 2016 for there even to be that acknowledgement. So we have the acknowledgement now. So that you know, that's a first step in, in helping address the problem. Yeah. And so there's, we're making some good fundamental advances in that. Unfortunately, we're not facing the exact same threat landscape we did in 2016. And so that's one of those things. We can't be fighting the last war. We can't be looking back and trying to create solutions that would have impacted 2016 without understanding like exactly what he's talked about, you know, domestic actors can be involved in this, and they are, and we're seeing more and more of that popping up. But it's not, and then for foreign adversaries, it's not just Russia. We know Iran is in the game, China is in the game, and you know, even North Korea is start, you know, has as well in, in various areas. And to assume it's just those four, by the way, is probably you know, mm-hmm. is probably um, you know, not uh, not accurate either. And so it's multi-actor states, non-state, uh, domestic, foreign. Uh, and they're looking, and they're just becoming more sophisticated in how they're doing it. And it could be anything. So whereas before it was a fake persona, you know what they've also been doing is leveraging, you know, creating fake local news sources mm-hmm. that look. They start off doing some what looks, you know, what is actually realistic local news. Then they slowly, and once they you know, build up their their readership, start putting in a lot of the, the disinformation. And so there are so many different ways that the the bots are able to you know, target really f- uh, fine sections of the of the um, the social media landscape that. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting. I mean, on the one hand, again, as a researcher, it'll be interesting to watch. As someone right. who also uh, has a background in studying democracy, it's very worrisome. But I do believe that you know, there is awareness, and that's where we really need to, again, as a community, spread that awareness, make sure people understand, to look at sources that they're reading, to you know, look at multiple sources even. That would be phenomenal. I know that's kind of asking for too much in many cases with, with short attention spans. But the more we can do to help educate the community and have them be aware Make sure they know, you know, who's who's sending, um, you know, what kind of information. Making sure they're actually real people, and then looking at the, the sourcing. And so, uh, I think we're getting the awareness is growing, but so so too are the uh, the threats. And so it'll be, it it will absolutely be something that we will be hearing a lot about. And we, when we keep hearing about it a lot, I mean, we're already seeing various kinds of deep fakes already starting to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, there's legislation popping up as well, preventing the use of them. Right. And so that's where we're seeing sort of the, the cat and mouse for the. On the on policy side, trying to catch up uh, for some of the ways that the media can be manipulated. Right. Uh, all things to keep an eye on for sure in the uh, coming months. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This has been Dr. Andrea Little Limbago from Virtue. Uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. No, thank you for a great conversation. Well, with that, we've just about wrapped things up. I'm Bradley Barth, senior reporter with SC Media. Until next time. Have a safe day online.